This is Soundwise, a new music box podcast sharing insights and stories from people who dedicate their lives to new music. Brought to you by New Music USA, the resource for adventurous creators and listeners in the U.S. and beyond. Welcome to Sound Lives. I'm Frank J. O'Terry, and you're listening to Andrew Yee perform the 2020 solo cello version of Music for Transitions by Inti Figuez Vizueta, who has taken time from her extremely busy schedule this year to talk with us about her music, as well as her ideas about musical notation, interpretation, and much more. Thank you so much for taking time to speak to me for this Sound Lives podcast. It's so exciting and inspirational to me that there have been all these performances of your music happening, especially it's been particularly gratifying because most of us spent the last three years locked in our homes. And, you know, and the idea that there are all these live performances again all over the world of your music is particularly exciting. Yeah, thank you so much. Yeah, so happy to be here. And it's been kind of a wild few years, <laughs> kind of especially in this remote mode of making music and of like building a lot of these relationships. And then this past year and this year have been really the fulfillment and also actually putting what people are in real life to faces on, on a computer, um, which has been really, yeah, really gratifying and also hectic. But I'm so happy to be able to talk to you today. What's amazing to me is so many people during the pandemic were kind of in the doldrums and they couldn't do anything and they really felt emotionally paralyzed by it. It was a harrowing, harrowing experience. I'm grateful that you took the time during the three years to write so much music. I'm looking through your catalog and I did a tally, but based on my tabulations, it looks like you composed over two dozen pieces since the pandemic. That's a lot of music. When you're sitting around you know, <laughs> and you have a lot of thoughts and emotions, it is helpful to have, have an outlet and also have an outlet that is kind of collaborative and dialogue based with with performers. And so a lot of these pieces kind of formed out of a mutual desire from me and from a lot of other musicians to connect in the ways in which we were kind of missing out and how these relationships kind of naturally form in concerts or in all the other places that our field talks about and engages and feels and makes plans for future music. And so I feel like with that kind of energy and desire, there was a lot of meeting of people and that ended up really kind of pushing forward all these different projects. And I think we were all kind of in a mode of being not quite knowing what the future was going to be and kind of wanting to do our best with what we had. And so I, I feel like I saw that in so many different areas of, at this point, the internet, thinking about like Nadia Sirota's like Living Music podcast, when we had nothing else going on, that weekly check-in of all these people who we normally saw and, and all of us fell off the face of the earth. There was a real kind of sense of community and presence there's also this group, Open Improvisations, on Facebook, and we would have all these little 10-minute slots, and you would meet all these people doing all these wild things in their own environments, from playing solo music to, you know, as our technology started to um, catch up, playing duets from different places, to then people being able to engage music in their own backyard. I remember one really cool performance of someone playing a canoe 
<laughs> with, <laughs> with various implements. And so there was a real, I just, I felt like from that, you know, I met a lot of people who I think I would have maybe met otherwise, but it didn't feel like those relationships stopped forming and the interest in making music together didn't stop either. And so I was really happy to be able to write so much in the pandemic and to now finally meet the people I was writing for, which has been the last year. Now I, I really want to hear this piece for Canoe. Have those open improv sessions been archived anywhere? Are they still available for people to listen to? So it was a Facebook group, and all of them were done as live streams within the group. I think there's this backlog of like hundreds of videos wow. um, where everyone would do their individual little 10-minute set. They would end right on 10 minutes. You would get another notification that a Facebook Live started. And so then you would click into that. You would see all the same people. And the dialogue, you know, the kind of sidebar chat kept on going. Wow, I love it. Yes, I have to join the group in order to be, hopefully they're still letting people in and I can raid those archives and go straight to the canoe. But I want to hear other things too, <laughs> but the canoe is intriguing. Um, but to bring it back to your music, these pieces that you wrote during this time, it's like it's all over the map. It's, it's solo pieces. Yeah, there are solo piano pieces. There are percussion ensemble pieces. But there are full orchestra pieces and then, of course, something that probably makes the most sense during this very uncertain era of ours, pieces for variable instrumentation, pieces that are more open-ended. And it's wonderful that there's now this growing repertoire, not just by you, but by a lot of composers that have flexible instrumentation. Yeah, you've written for all these different combinations, but there are certain things that keep recurring. You seem to have a particular affinity for string quartet and for percussion, and those two things somebody who doesn't know any better is just kind of thinking about it seem like they're almost polar opposites i don't know if i would say that <laughs> i appreciate you noticing these patterns one of the things that comes up for me is that I, I write for individuals a lot or i write for groups and it's really about groups approaching me and for things like string quartets or percussion ensembles quartets whatever i do feel like there's a certain level of a kind of shared musicality, a shared sense of like tone and timbre and attack and all of these things that kind of like contribute to a group mentality of how to play with and affect texture in like all of their kind of individual ways. The psychology of string quartets is some of my favorite material in some ways to encounter with different groups that I'm writing for, kind of figuring out what feels good under their hands, what feels good, what it sounds like they kind of lean into, but also what kind of interactivity happens within the ensemble. Who is cueing? Is the ensemble a first violin forward ensemble or is it a cello forward ensemble? And where in that does that affect all the ways in which sound can be made? And especially for the kind of music that I write, in some ways kind of trying to hold a mirror to ensembles and their own kinds of musical tendencies that those particularities and peculiarities kind of become the foregrounded texture and interaction that's happening in a lot of my music. I feel like for string quartets, there's a really specific and like rich history there that many quartets share, but that all of them kind of specialize in different ways. And then I feel like for percussion ensemble, there's a way of thinking about interactivity and togetherness. And also I do think in the percussionist's mindset, there's also this curiosity and improvisatory spirit that comes with even the selection of one's instruments or the selection of one's table or setup or mallets. You know, it's all about this kind of tasting <laughs> idea. And maybe I'm showing my like 
barista roots, but I love <laughs> the idea of having something appear in one way, tasting it, adjusting a little bit, having it appear again, shifting another parameter. And so I feel like that kind of engagement with music is shared between the two ensembles, just in fairly different contexts, right? Because the percussion ensemble is such a new invention and the quartet is so old. I feel like they're, if not siblings, at least cousins, maybe. Oh, that's interesting. I like that. I love the barista metaphor, which I'd love to go back to. But yeah, I guess the reason I was thinking in terms of opposites is the whole ideal for string quartets is that you have these four people and they're sort of supposed to sound as one, that they're the same family of instruments across this wide range. And the only thing that's really close to it parallel in Western music is the saxophone quartet, where you have, you know, the same family of instruments across the range. And that's a, a relatively recent concept. But percussion is completely open-ended. It could be any instrument. Mm-hmm. So it's not about a homogenous sound. It's very much about heterogeneous sound. And also the string quartet, you picture them. Yeah, there are some groups that stand up. It's always harder for the cellist to do so. But, you know, they're mostly seated and it's a very formal thing. Whereas with percussion, there's really an element of choreography also. They've got to move around. They're like, in order to make it work. So that's why they, they're sort of, on the surface, very different. I think of like the piece by John Luther Adams for four bass drums. But it's like, it feels like that homogeneity is also something that folks are looking for and grasping for a little bit with the percussion quartet kind of sound. I know for me, the idea of, a shared score is extremely important because to me it feels like we're all kind of reading from the same thing and therefore are able to make decisions from the same kind of mutual gaze or perspective or source. But the idea of a kind of sharedness of the quality of the sound itself with some variation, I feel like is also a exciting, yeah, parallel back and forth. Because I also think of like string quartets where the homogeneity is, is less foregrounded and it's more about the viscerality and virtuosity of each voice. And that balance back and forth, I think, is also on this continuum that we're talking about in terms of, yeah, like what the voice of that ensemble is like. And the idea that uh, is it, you know, four voices coming together as one or is it are they are we trying to get as close as possible or as one as possible. And they, I mean, I guess we could think about intonation too, but yeah. Right. And another thing that ties them together is the tactile quality of it. The very physical process. Obviously, no matter what instrument you play, it's a physical act. You know, you're playing a wind instrument or singing is a physical act, although you, you don't see the instrument that's inside you. But we think of all those instruments, singing and wind instruments, as really being controlled by breath. Whereas strings and percussion are controlled by touch. Obviously, you're also fingering a wind instrument, but your breath shapes the phrase, whereas your touch is exclusively with shaping phrases, both for strings and percussion, which makes me wonder in terms of you growing up and your exposure to music. Did you play a stringed instrument? Where did this affinity for this kind of tactile way of making sound come from? I'd say it came from a few places. There were times that it got me into trouble. I kept being given drums in uh, elementary school as part of our music lesson, and then they would take them away pretty quickly because I, <laughs> I, wouldn't, I wouldn't kind of be doing what was being tasked of me. I would just be like trying to hear all the different sounds on the drum. And there's this sense for me that exploration was always kind of more interesting to me than 
trying to learn a, a set thing that I could choreograph with other people. So it didn't make me super popular in my group music classes, but it did kind of stick with me as I was growing up in D.C., there was just this real sense that kind of music making was a community activity. And the spaces that I would make it the most would be Malcolm X Park on 16th Street. They had a drum circle that was Caribbean-led, but it had all these different cultures kind of coming together. So there was like West African drumming as well. There was also like capoeiristas that would like come and dance along to the stuff. And so there's a kind of like cultural and musical intermixing that I grew up with a lot. <laughs> there was a group in town that my mom knew really well and I was like five and they would let me play with them on stage for a song or something and so I think there was a sense of like a percussive childhood a little bit for me the other part of that was also this guitar oriented culture that sprung up around a lot of parties in like the Latin American communities that I was part of I never learned how to play that well, um, but I did have a deep love of the instrument. And honestly, when I shifted from noodling around on guitar to kind of properly playing mandolin, which I studied in school, to now starting to learn uh, viola, I think a lot better in fifths than in fourths. It helps helps me a lot. The music program at the high school I went to wasn't great. We watched Amadeus, like maybe three times a week out of this class. <laughs> so it was a very chill class. I really didn't do much. I learned the note names. I learned about Mozart, maybe, depending on how, <laughs> how we feel about that movie. So a lot of the kind of musical spaces I was in, one was called the Latin American Youth Center Art House. And this was this multi-level structure. They had all these different mediums. And so again, I was just like an unfocused child. So I would like kind of try out each medium and not commit that much time and just like really feel out what the connections were for me. And another place called the Sitar Center where my mom taught dance. When she was teaching her classes, they would just let me into the piano room or the music room and I would just like noodle around for hours. Very kind of unfocused. And then I started formally studying in college. Composition. Yeah, composition, but also an applied music requirement. So that was... Bach and Bartok on mandolin. It's great that you brought up other cultures because I was going to go there a little bit later and specifically to that really brilliant essay you wrote called Finding Tradition in New Music for I Care If You Listen, which I think is a, a really important essay because of how you struck what I thought was a really rational and commonsensical balance between the, the necessity of cultural sensitivity when approaching other cultures but also the fact that everyone has the right to engage with the entire world of sound and that gatekeeping is very problematic thing. So I think you struck the right balance in there. And I'm reminded, you know, kind of want to correct us both earlier when we said, oh, well, yeah, string quartets are really old and percussion quartets are really young. Well, there are percussion quartets, you know, going back millennia in other parts of the world, you know, in West Africa, in among Native American traditions, drum circles, and whatnot. So we talk about how so-called contemporary classical music is somehow derived from European classical music. Of course, now in the 21st century, it's a response to all of the world's traditions and people all over the world make music that fits this rubric as yet to be defined. And I think it's great that it's not defined because as soon as you define something, you limit what it is, right? But One thing that contemporary music that's problematic is this notion 
that there's one right way to play a piece, that you have this score. And I see it with performers. I see it with composers. They'll rehearse the piece. They'll get the performance as a good performance. They get a recording. Okay, move on to the next one. Never play it again. The composer's like, I'm never interested in another performance. That's it. Goodbye. On to the next thing. Whereas in classical music, 50 different pianists playing Chopin or 50 different interpretations, there's no right and wrong. And you get excited about hearing what somebody else brings to it. And I bring this all up because what I love about your music is the fact that interpreters have some agency in it and that it's not, oh, these are my notes. You must follow my rules, right? Mm -hmm. That it's this thing where people feel part of it. And I would dare say that's part of why all these performers are playing your music because they feel like they could be part of it. A hundred percent. I think you're touching on one of the core <laughs> core tenets of what I write and how I write it. And honestly, the thread that runs through the music, because sometimes I'll look back at how many pieces and how varied they are and, and how many circumstances they exist in. And some of them are really limited and some of them are really wide. But I feel like the thread is this sense of creating a piece that can be invested in and that where that investment kind of can continue to transform over time and that investment can be affected by the world and your relationships and what you learn over time so it's kind of ability to grow <laughs> i see them as vessels but i also see them as like plants or something that we're able to continue to revisit them and see how they've changed and see how even if you've been away from a piece for a long time I'll hear people come back and play something that I haven't heard in years. And it, I thought I had a stable sense of that piece in my mind. And suddenly someone just blows me away with a completely different place that they go with it. That has to feel really exciting because the idea that like we're just writing something to exist in one form, time passes and it just kind of stops moving. It's a strange sense to me that to me, the functionality of the thing that I'm making is it's continual ability to be brought into the present and brought into the context and the musicianship and the set of musical skills and backgrounds and traditions that individual performers and groups are part of. And letting that kind of affect the music. In some ways, I'm pretty hesitant in some ways. I kind of, on either side of this line of trying to provide no recordings so that people can't reference stuff, trying to provide a first recording so people can reference just the first iteration, and then putting something like five recordings of the same piece on the internet. And I think I've done each one and feel differently about how each kind of affects people. I do think in some ways there is this kind of orality that comes out of a writing practice where there isn't an obvious answer as to how to create it in the perfect way. And that's an anxiety that a lot of performers, especially in the Western classical music tradition and conservatory trained performers, have deep inside them, that if they don't know how to sound good along the parameters that I'm giving, then there's a paralysis there. There's a, a fear that comes in. It's, it's not something to be like annoyed at <laughs> or frustrated by. It's just the reality of it. It's that the training doesn't totally engage us. And, and that's the reason that the work exists, is that it's in some ways trying to push at the notion that there has to be a separation between an interpretive artistry and a creative artistry. When you're able to invest yourself in a piece alongside other people, in some ways we can talk about the dynamic of a solo piece versus an ensemble piece or a flexible instrumentation piece, but that when there's this kind of mutual investment that everyone has, then suddenly we can get past this 
the sense the score is something to be achieved versus the score is a tool to create really beautiful music in whatever that feels like for the people who are in the room. Or to get back to your barista metaphor earlier to bring food and drink into it, the score is a recipe. Yes. It's not the meal, right? Right. I know. Totally. And I, yeah, I come across that philosophy, that the music is the notation. And I think it's a funny back and forth with me sometimes where the way that I use notation is one of the aspects that people kind of foreground when they speak about what I do. But the notation in, in some ways is kind of this red herring a little bit like it's it in some ways pushes against the notion of a regularity of interpretation and then that first step lets us get to this much more expansive set of possibilities well what's interesting about the notation is that the only people who see it except you know people who are wandering around on the internet and see pages here and there are the people who are playing the music the audience who comes to hear the performance doesn't see the score it's not for them it's this, you know, one remove in a way. And to get back to what you were saying about your different approaches with different pieces, I love the fact that on your SoundCloud page, you offer multiple interpretations of the same pieces. That's wonderful because it it automatically says there's no right, there's no wrong, there are multiple rights. And I could see how if you gave somebody one performance of something to say this is what it is, they're going to try to imitate that, which is not what you want. So if you give them like five different ones, they're going to come up with the sixth one. And then, of course, if there's no interpretation, you either get bewilderment or you get enlightenment, right? <laughs> I found this other path. It's interesting to me to, to hear you compare your works to to plants. And it makes sense that you'd have a piece called Branching Patterns, right? The piece for Kronos. Mm-hmm. And I'm curious how that relationship came about and that's a piece where yeah i've looked at the score i am an audience member i was not one of the performers of it but i did you know you have the score up and i looked at it and it's a very unusual score every musician gets the same thing they get what everyone's doing it's a very atypical string quartet score so i'm wondering how that evolved how that worked in the rehearsal process how the members of chronos navigated that Let's listen to the Kronos Quartet perform a bit of Inti Figgis Fizueta's branching patterns. I met Kronos over the internet during the pandemic as well. I think when I talked to David, he was a a profoundly difficult time for him because he has such a heavy performance routine and such a outward personality. I think that distance made him turn to the internet in a lot of ways. And we ended up connecting and 
he was really astounded by this piece that I did with Andrew Yee called Music for Transitions that we did pretty early in the pandemic, which kind of came out of multiple years of having different iterations of a piece that never got played. So this final one, I'm never kind of precious about the past. I'm always like, what can I make right now? And so that ended up being this piece. And it was for four cellos that were layered. So four Andrews. And it was this beautiful, trippy kind of video with uh, these sectioned off layers of Andrew vertical slices. So as the piece goes on, you see a body have these moments of alignment, but otherwise be in this constant transformation. David was really, really happy with that recording and ended up featuring it on their digital Kronos Festival in 2021. And then I got another email, which was basically like, hey, we have this 50 for the Future project. We have one opening. Would you be interested in doing this? Super short timeline. Here's all the things. And I was like, Heck yes. Like, <laughs> absolutely. I'm here for it. This was a dream. I remember hearing about this project and being like, God, I wish I could do that, but I'm never going to be <laughs> like, like, I won't be in this thing. And so having this kind of moment of being like, so do you want to? And I was like, absolutely. And so it was kind of a short turnaround and it ended up being tacked on to the end of this two-year residency slash education program that I did with Jack Quartet called the Jack Studio Program. So I was already in deep inside string quartet land and was kind of given this opportunity. In terms of the, the score layout, the approach to it, the notation, it all refers back to this collaboration and festival that I did called Taproot at UC Davis that I did in early 2020. So this is January, 2020. I did it with the Spectral Quartet. They got applications and they picked mine and I ended up writing a new piece for them. The first version of that piece was super complicated. It was very abstract. It was all about these like giant cycles, but I nested all these different things inside them. But the notation itself and just like the time that we had at the opportunity itself, just it made it feel like it wasn't quite the right thing. And when things don't fit, then I just like put it down and make the next thing and see if I learned something from how something didn't fit. And so I ended up going from this really complicated score to this very simple score of a single stave that everyone was reading from. And then trying to work within the limitation of just giving something like a single texture or quality or trajectory or a set of shared pitches, like triads, but trying to make them as ghostly and strange as possible, putting them as high as possible, as low as possible, like just really painting with them at the edges. And, and I had this idea of when we start with the edges, it builds a frame <laughs> and everything that comes afterward is affected by that frame. That approach I brought to this Kronos piece because I was, I was really actually excited by the focus on youth string quartets and this idea of a kind of entry point for young string quartets to play contemporary music and to play music by people who are living. And I went through all of the other pieces that were up because this project had been going on for five years. <laughs> there was a gamut of pieces, right? There were ones that were like so, so hard. Maybe that was like a graduate string quartet could do it, maybe with a lot of practice to like very beautiful and simple and, and quite lyrical pieces with a 16th note pulse or something. You know, to me, this is like this giant spectrum. And I was trying to figure out kind of where I wanted to be on that. And what did I want 
to in some ways kind of teach <laughs> about either how to play my own music or how to approach music that involves things like choice and choice that's kind of outside of the idea of a aleatory that's tied to time or just tied to repetition. Like how can we create choice making that's about painting as lightly or as heavily as possible and have that be an expressive element of the piece. That was kind of my approach to that piece as well. Finally, knowing that I was writing it for them, I wanted there to be a lot of solo moments. And so I wrote in <laughs> a lot of a lot of specific, like, okay, we have cello, and now it goes to solo cello. And now we have David's solo violin part coming out of that. And now everyone's joining. So it's just like this really big dance to me that how it happens over time can be determined by the ensemble. But there's like these natural inclinations of how the ensemble relates to one another that fills in and eventually like becomes the kind of glue in everything. This material is available for all these young quartets. So hopefully there'll be like 50 different young quartets around the world that take up this piece. So there'll be many, many different versions of what this piece can be. And you mentioned Ataka, another quartet of yours that I love is this piece, Imago very different in some ways. I've not seen the score for Imago, but I don't necessarily have to in order to appreciate it. But I wonder how open-ended is that compared to branching patterns? It's different. Imago was commissioned by the Phillips Collection, and it was in response to artworks that I was able to select. So I selected this piece, Untitled, which is this giant mylar drawing, very repetition-heavy, very dimensional, and by Lynn Myers. And then this giant sculpture, which is, I think, glass beads and wire. I wasn't able to see them while I was writing the piece. So there is an element of this reaching out to this thing that I can't touch that I think entered the notation a little bit because the piece is quite a bit about shared gesture or the building of a texture of over-repeated figures. It was about like reaching out <laughs> in these ways to feel the, the dimensionality of something that I can only kind of engage on a screen. And so the notation for that piece is fairly intuitive for me to make. I trust them a lot as interpreters. I think that I probably could have gotten away with a lot less <laughs> than I put on the page, but I put a lot on the page, mostly to give them a lot. There was this opening section is all about these different combinations of gestures. I was noticing that when I was writing string music and I would say, okay, um, turbulent or short or staccato or pointillistic, it would often only mean that they were doing one kind of figure, right? Like pointillism, all right, we're doing ricochet. A texture that I feel like has the capacity to grow and be absolutely spectacular. In some ways, it's constrained by my lack of giving other options or of asking people to change over time. But even that is difficult to, to always ask. So in this piece, I gave a lot of ways that I wanted gestures to be combined. So for example, like having a ricochet down bow, but then always being followed by a accelerating lifting up bow. The combination of those gestures then becomes like a more dense thread that is then being played with. So to me, it was about giving some of these more specific ways of playing as a group that then they could like really grow off of. The second movement is also one of my favorites. It's everyone is doing this up, up, down, or down, down, up, all the way up, long note, pause. And they're doing it all together and they're, they're moving from like the same string and they're opening the strings downward. And then it ends with 
the violin playing the E string that they hadn't played yet. So to me, this is like, it was just like this really beautiful, like if we're speaking about choreography, that's how I felt about constructing that section. With some directions like that, they could make something really spectacular. It was really there in how I was forming the notation. There was a level of trust and that had come out of working with Andrew so much before, but then also knowing the Ataka folks from different places. Interesting. I'm going to go back and listen to it with another whole mindset now, the sort of choreographic mindset. And here is some of the Ataka Quartet's performance of Inti Figuez Fizueta's Imago. You brought up music for transitions, and I'm very glad that you sent me that recording from Red Cat. One of the places I was going to go with you, which now I'm going to go to a different place instead, is I was looking through all this stuff, and it's like, oh, you've written for so many different forces, string quartets, there's like orchestras, solo piano, but where's all the vocal music? There's no vocal music. I'm looking at this thing, and it's amazing string sextet. And then there's this other person on stage. Who's that? What's that? And then all of a sudden, they're singing. Now, if you just had audio, you wouldn't know at all because you wouldn't know that person's on stage and it would kind of come out of nowhere, like from this <laughs> sound from another world. And I, I was reminded, actually, of Arnold Schoenberg's second string quartet, where in the final movements, there's suddenly a soprano singing. You know, I hear the sound of other planets because you're taken to this other place. And then the voice goes away. The other piece that it called to mind to me is, I don't know if you know the, the John Cage piece, Four Walls. It's this piano piece. It's an hour-long piece. Halfway through it, there's an unaccompanied vocal, a soprano, and then that goes away, and then it goes back to being a keyboard piece. And I thought, this is so brilliant. This is such an interesting idea. Yeah, so vocal music, I think, is the place where I'm, I'm actually doing a lot of exploring this year. And... My first vocal music was choral, and it was for this vocal ensemble in Boston when I was doing my year of a master's there. It was an LGBT choir. It had a lot of members who were both classically trained and non-classically trained musicians, as well as folks that were going through myriad of physical things and transitioning themselves. So that was actually some of my first music that was in the realm of things that I write, where it was music that was based on breath. I don't know if I would I'd use the word algorithmic, but it was doing mathematical things to it, which is having a, a long thread of things and starting to cut in patterns and all that kind of fun stuff that you do. And I really enjoyed working with that ensemble. And we ended up doing two pieces together. And then I left Boston. I didn't really know that many people. I was just kind of coming into the scene. A lot of the ways that I started to first send out my music was through calls for scores. All of my instrumental music got picked up really, really quickly, and no one wanted to touch the choral vocal music, probably because it was using techniques and ways of orienting them that just was kind of outside the practice. And I've come to now know that there's 
an entire industry based on <laughs> music that's being written in a certain way for this ensemble. So I'm not surprised now, but I was kind of writing this music, having been kind of very, very deeply affected by Roomful of Teeth's first album when I was working in a music library at my undergraduate institute and coming across this disc and putting it on and being like, holy crap. <laughs> I think I was drawing from techniques and approaches that were very, very fringe into a world that wasn't quite for it at that moment. I took a big step back from that part of writing. I went kind of much more into the instrumental place. And part of it too is that there's this way that I, I felt like instrumentalists were down to clown a little bit, where I just kind of didn't always feel that with vocal ensembles and stuff. This year and last year has been this building of this piece in collaboration with Roomful of Teeth that has been kind of a big resurgence of that in my in my music. And in some ways it's teaching me things all over again, which has been really, really fun. I remember talking to, I think I was talking to Andrew, I was like, bass lines. I didn't remember how good they were. <laughs> like, I think I did my, my figured bass in school and I, I just felt like it was pretty perfunctory when I was doing chorales and all this stuff. Now I really like bass. And I think that that's kind of come out of this stuff as well. For the Music for Transitions concert, I ended up inviting Mingjo Chen, who is the vocalist. We had worked together at Mass Mocha when Rumphil and I were first getting together to like play with and make some sounds. Let's hear just a little bit of that Red Cat performance of Inti Figgis Fizueta's Music for Transitions, which is very different from the solo cello version that opened this episode. Andrew Yi is performing again here, but now is joined by violist Nadia Sirota and the CalArts String Quartet. Ali Nock and Simona Mora, violins, Nikki Chen, viola, and Erica Duke Kirkpatrick, cello. They will eventually be joined by vocalist Mingja Chen, but we'll have to wait to hear that another time. It's a gorgeous piece. It's very expansive. It's wonderful. Where I thought this might go, and it didn't go, because the thing is, when you write vocal music, and of course, you can ignore this, there are people who do, and there are people who write really amazing music that doesn't foreground a pre-existing text, or they do different things with vocal music. Obviously, I mean, the person who immediately comes to mind is Meredith Monk, who's rarely uses actual syntactical language but uses syllables and uses vocables and does extraordinary things and has created her own language through that but 
when you're writing vocal music, there's this other element, which either takes over, has, you have to deal with it. Do you want it to be understood? And if you don't want it to be understood, why are you using it? And what is the text you're using? And there are sensitivities. You mentioned the choral community, certain texts. Maybe the text you want to set might be a little controversial and, and a group isn't going to want to sing that. So it can go to those places as well. I'm wondering in that whole area of vocal music, the idea that an instrumental piece can be this abstract thing. It can mean whatever the listener wants it to mean. Obviously, you give it a title and it sends people thinking in a certain direction, but not the way a vocal piece does. When I think of solos in an instrumental context, it feels like an expression of virtuosity often. In some ways, I think some of the most special moments that I can think of is when an orchestration is really full and then we get to just a single voice playing something. But in the way that I try to avoid <laughs> engaging the same kinds of emotional landmarks that are within a classical frame, so to me, like the idea of a credential structure or of a an accelerating harmonic rhythm or of high romantic solo. You know, there were things that in school that I just didn't mesh with that much. And in some ways, I realized that it has infused in some ways the way that I craft harmony and in, in, in all of these things. But it's not so foregrounded in what I do in, in most of my instrumental music. And working with Roomful, there has been this moment where I'm like, a single voice is as powerful and as expressive and as capable of holding us as eight voices, right? That there's this stranger relationship between expressivity and emotionality that can happen with the meeting of just two sounds. Whereas like in instrumental music, I often think of this as part of a larger arc. Here I get to luxuriate a little bit in just what the quality of two people singing together is. And of actually using all of the complexities of a word to push forward meaning. To me, it's not narrative meaning. And that's kind of what I was afraid of, that when I had to engage language, I had to be tied to a narrative. Instead of being tied to the complexities of thinking about something like love or of lots and lots of other things. For the Roomful piece, we ended up using this text by Emily Dickinson called I Have No Life But This. And it was one of these letter poems. So it's like written on a letter and has all these little extra words and stuff. There's all this text that didn't make it into the poem. Also, the context around the creation of the poem meant that I was drawing from all of this extant material that she had made and that we have a record of. And so there's this one word withheld. It engages this idea of the love that she's expressing, the idea of material around the eventual poem that didn't make it in. And then also it has this very kind of social and musical meaning when it's placed within the space. Like that is such a powerful nugget. To me, the the power of it was amazing Great. and really beautiful. When is the world going to get to hear this piece? We did a work in progress residency at Barishnikov in April. And we ended up doing a 15 minute of the piece. It's in collaboration with this animator, Rose Bond who does these incredible hand-drawn animations. And we ended up making it so that it was very cue-based on both ends. So there was a mutual affection between the decisions of the ensemble and Rose, who was controlling how the timing and motion of the animation. 
you know, we have plans to expand it to like a 30 minute piece and that should be next year or two. But it's been one of the nicest and, and longest processes of collaboration that I've been able to have with an ensemble. I think for a lot of instrumental pieces, it's very much like I'm expected to do like a year and a half of back work and then we put it together in like three days or something. But the way that I write, sometimes it's in friction with the logistics of rehearsal. Can't wait to hear the entire piece. We should listen to some of that workshop performance so we can hear some of Inti Figgis Fizueta's vocal music. This is from Earths to Come, performed by Roomful of Teeth. I want to hit a few more areas before we completely run out of time. You have this fascinating piece where you have several pieces that are different pieces that you can play simultaneously. Open work, knotted object, trellis and bloom, lightning ache. I'm curious about how that works, this whole idea that there's no right or wrong even further, that there's so many different ways to approach this body of work. That piece was a big, <laughs> a big leap for me, actually. It was commissioned by National Sawdust as part of the Hildegard competition, which I ended up being selected as one of the winners in late 2018, early 2019. And that was like a month after I moved to New York. And that has very much shaped my time here. And through that program, I was able to do all these like artist residencies, like Meredith Monk actually came through and we did like a three-hour workshop. I don't think I ever would have met her other than this space. Part of writing the piece was at that point, I felt like I needed to ask permission a lot. Are you okay going somewhere with me? The way I'm going to present this and the process of writing it and the iterations are going to be different because it's not about you have a full score and all you're doing is adding dynamics and changing the dovetail of the cutoff. It's always a kind of radical reshuffling of the materials into something different that I hope will create a different alchemy for things to happen. For this piece, I ended up writing it in these two big chunks, which was this orchestrated, very uh, durational piece. And that was Lightning Ache. That was all about the inflections and ways of using limited material as to paint with. The piece was referencing a lot of music that I really, really loved, especially this Cuss's like second string quartet. That was big on my mind at that moment. And so, and of course, Donica Dennehy's use of back and forth between equal temperament and just intonation. I felt like I was like, okay, well, that can happen back and forth within a kind of larger frame. And the back and forth is part of the inflection of an individual instrument instead of the changing of the entire harmonic frame that everyone's playing it with. This was also when I was playing with notation a lot. So as I learned new notation or like invented new notation, I was able to get closer to what I wanted. And so that piece is much more about having just very limited pitch material and very limited rhythms, or really they're just kind of 
very rounded <laughs> shapes. Part of what I was thinking too was like, how do you give permission for disalignment in an ensemble context? Because it often feels very wrong <laughs> to people. And what I wanted was this sense that it was like, six performers all trailing in their own worlds, but in almost like similar spirals <laughs> through the mm. worlds. And then Chalice and Bloom was this way of organizing all of it. So it has these like kind of individual little gestures and those can be repeated. And so it's also just like about the length of repetition, all, all this stuff that was in the psychology of the notation. But then it has this framework for moving all three pieces with some suggested timings for how long you stay in each. And then everyone starts consecutively. So everyone has a different local time. Let's listen to part of a simultaneous performance of open work, not an object, trellis and bloom, and lightning ache, performed by the National Sawdust Ensemble. Now, have they ever been done separately? And would that be wrong? Is the idea that they exist together? I think I came to that idea. Part of it was there was a mentorship factor in this. And I remember talking to Du Yun and I was like, I want it to be this, but I also want it to be this. Do I have to pick one? And, and uh, Du was like, no, just put them together. And I was like, okay, cool. I'll figure that out. So I think for me, all of them are almost incomplete pieces and that they were completed in their... By becoming a triptych, they became one. Obviously, I mean, it's a very unusual idea, but of course, you know, in the 21st century, nothing's without precedent. John Cage had this idea that you could play two of his pieces at the same time if you wanted to. You could perform aria and have Fontana mix in the background, but those yeah. two pieces are separate. Then there's something else when they come together. But this is really a different idea that you're getting a different kind of piece with this idea of these different things not aligning and that that's part of the listening experience. It isn't about the idea that all things happen in time and that you choose. I studied with Felipe Lara for a bit and he was very encouraging of this sense of simultaneous pieces of mind going on. And I remember that's why I got some of this inspiration as well. But in some ways, I have been a little bit hesitant to do that with not these three, but other ones that I've constructed and I know work together. Like part of it is that I haven't quite had the opportunity to engage a performer heavy community. I think this would have to happen in the school, to be honest. Open work is in this strange place of being both written for Piero Ensemble and having that idea that you can add as many instruments as you want. I was like, I want it to be this, but then it's this. And having the opportunities since that premiere to hear it in these different ways is interesting to me it, with this piece sometimes and with all of my music that 
sometimes I'll hear someone just riffing on the same thing. And I'm like, how are you going to get out of the situation you've placed yourself in where you're now in this like single moment or single space? Part of the piece and what it was kind of trying to give was this option to just shift dimensions <laughs> almost. Like if you're tired of what you're doing and you're in this in open work and you've been there for 10 seconds, just like snap over to the next thing. So it was also this way of kind of trying to promote a level of agency of what material and in what context you were playing that material versus trying to fulfill a kind of structural perfection of it or, or even a conceptual perception or perfection of it. It was in this place of like trying to be very practical, but also asking something that's very abstract and of which there's no kind of perfect answer. To demonstrate how different Intifigas Fisueta's music can sound when performed by different interpreters, here is another simultaneous performance, this time by Ensemble Del Niente, of open work knotted object, trellis in bloom, and lightning ache. Fantastic. The last thing I wanted to touch on, because it's one of my favorite pieces of yours, taking it to another opposite, a piece that's very much about synchronicity and being in sync and being together, is to give you former breath. Probably not only one of my favorite pieces of yours, but a lot of people's, because it's been done a lot. It's been done by different groups, and it's very exciting, very dynamic, but a very different aesthetic and performance than what we've been talking about for the last few minutes. There was a time pretty early where like anytime anyone reached out, I just put everything into that piece that was being asked for. And this was one of those where I was asked for a percussion trio that could travel. It became actually like this sense of like a, an instrument that you can make so you can find things and bring it together. And I was inspired by a piece by David Lang called Anvil Chorus. It's for a solo performer and it has all these different kinds of metal that the performer selects. So the sense of like what the piece is, I think, changes based on just like the quality of what the people find. I had a, a really enjoyable time thinking about what kinds of materials I wanted and how I wanted to ask people to define them, to think about them. And then eventually for me, when I was writing it, how to create counterpoint <laughs> out of timbre instead of out of pitch. So I was thinking about the, the instruments themselves, this idea of construction, of engaging the creative part of a percussionist's instrument building and choreography building and all this stuff. Then I was thinking about this concept of squishing and expanding time a little bit. So the whole piece is in 6-8 and the variations, the kind of polyrhythms that we get out of individual performers and then eventually everyone is this idea of squishing seven beats into six or eight beats into six or four beats into six, you know, but it isn't a regular occurrence, but there is the idea that you're building at least a pattern with it. String players, I, I hear them think about intonation a lot, 
with percussion ensembles, I think I hear about timing a lot and I hear about unison and and groove and pattern and beat and stuff. And so I wanted to have a, a way in which each of the performers was able to play against this regularity in like whatever way that they wanted and in a free kind of pattern with the instruments that they had. I wanted to let through a little bit the potential for virtuosity from individual performers. It seemed like that could be a, a cool and an exciting part of it. So I'm always thinking about this concerto-y vibe of like individual and group. And in some ways I try and avoid the kind of romantic individual standing against the group strongly. But in this piece, I, I felt like there was this way in which because of the shared nature of the timbres of the instruments, that there was a way in which it would be more like a flourish of the group instead of, of the individual. Well, this is so interesting because one of the pieces you're writing now is a piano concerto, which is kind of the yeah. ultimate romantic, the individual versus the society. Because <laughs> normally there yeah. isn't this like big grand piano smack in the center of the stage and you're seeing, you know, this one person fighting against the orchestra. So in this piece for Conrad Tower, are you going to be resisting trying to be trying to, <laughs> following in the tradition of Tchaikovsky and Brahms and all right. these people? I love the Tchaikovsky concertos. But in some ways, that piece is funny. I'm not that worried about it because of who I'm writing for. With Conrad, we've been friends for a few years now, and we really connected over the pandemic and have a shared sense of the potential of spontaneity and improvisation in these larger contexts. In some ways, I think, through the concertos that I've done in the last couple of years, the cello concerto for Jay Campbell and the LA Phil, to this Trinkotech concerto for Ataka and ACO, American Composers Orchestra, there has been this sense of ambassadorship that kind of occurs from these very specialized players with a, a larger ensemble. Both of those pieces were for smaller orchestras, and this is for a large one. I am strategizing what engaging creativity and openness means in a context where people want to be together. The philosophy of all of this exists at the mercy in some ways of who's playing it, because it's music that requires a level of sympathy to go along with me, to, to agree to my rules and my ideas. In this piece, I think I'm trying to figure out how to set up Conrad to be able to allow the internal listening that I feel like he does in his playing and in his improvising and allow that to affect the way in which the orchestra is playing. For the most part, my pieces are, are workshops in some ways. This kind of collective responsibility around continuing a sound makes it so that there's purpose in adding sound in, in an individual not knowing that they need to play and choosing to play. And that comes from the listening of being inside that group. And so I think that's to where I'm, I'm kind of trying to lean. But in some ways, it also requires a level of sympathy and a level of listening. How this occurs in the notation and in the rehearsal practice and in how I construct the cue system for Matthias Pincher, I think it's all going to be almost like a, a loose suit. And then we fit it <laughs> over, over the rehearsal. Can't wait to hear it and see it. Thank you. Thank you, Inti. This has been an extraordinary conversation. Thank you for your time and ideas and keep writing music. Keep doing this stuff. This is fantastic. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Frank. That concludes this episode of Sound Lives with Inti Fizueta, though we could have talked for hours. But before we go, let's listen to one last piece of hers that we talked about today. Here's her percussion trio to give you form and breath, performed by Redfish Bluefish. 
New Music Box is brought to you by New Music USA, the resource for adventurous creators and listeners in the U.S. and beyond. This program is funded in part by the National Endowment for the Arts, the New York State Council on the Arts, the New York City Department of Cultural Affairs, and listeners like you. If you enjoyed today's episode, visit newmusicusa.org to explore more stories and voices from our new music community.